Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Chiu in for Scott Wapner today. Front and center this hour, another big breakout for yields as we enter into a high-stakes week ahead of your money. Our investment committee is now standing by with the setup here. So joining me for the hour on set at Post 9 are Joe Terranova and Jim Labenthal. We have Bryn Talkington and Steve Weiss in the mix as well. Let's get a check on the markets right now, which are losing some steam and have been over the course of the last couple of hours or so. If you look at right now, the Dow Industrials is down about 227 points. That's two-thirds of 1% in terms of declines. The S&P 500 off by about five points, so just about one-tenth percent decline there. And the Nasdaq Composite is actually holding up pretty well, up one-half of 1%, 13,350 there. But all of this is being framed around kind of like your number or price or any kind of theme for the day. And that is rising interest rates, because as you see on the bottom of your screen there, the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note is currently at 4.34%. We got as high as 4.35% earlier on. The reason why it's important is because it's the cycle high. In fact, not just a cycle high for this time around, it goes to the highest level that we've seen going all the way back to 2007 before the great financial crisis. That's how far you have to go back to see 10-year yields at this point. Uh, I bring up the great financial crisis and housing in 2007 and a 10-year note yield there because, Joe, many mortgages are benchmarked off the 10-year U.S. Treasury note. They are. I'm not saying that in in any way or even trying to hint at it that, that we're due for another great financial crisis, but it represents a real paradigm shift, a sea change in the way that we've been dealing with rates over the past 10 to 15 years in terms of the low level of them. Okay, so it, it, it does. I think what it, what it impacts most is the competition for equities. That's really the biggest challenge about yield spiking. Now, let's understand, it's the two-year going back to 5%. It's the 10-year returning to levels that we haven't witnessed since 2007. It's the 30-year going back to 2009 levels. And it's inflation-protected securities above 2% for the first time since 2009. And it's just, okay, the risk-free rate versus the rate of return on equities, do I want to assume the risk or not? And that's the conversation right now. I don't think it's in any regard about where we were in 07 and 08 uh, regarding residential real estate. Let's remember something, that there was a very well-telegraphed message from the Federal Reserve about the impending rise in rates. So corporations got well ahead of what their 
uh, debt maturity needs might be and extended those maturities. Fortunately, corporations, S&P 500 companies, you're talking about over 70% of debt maturing five years from today. Uh, consumers, home buyers, okay, they're maintaining their, you know, sub- 4% 30-year mortgage, they're not going to forfeit that. They're not going to trade that out for an 8% mortgage. So I, I don't think it's the pressure that's being exerted on consumers and corporations in the debt markets. I just think it's the competition for equities. It's an uncomfortable place for us to be in, and it really falls on Chairman Powell next uh, on this Friday to ensure that he strikes a balance. Because if Chairman Powell doesn't strike a balance, if he has the type of tone where he did last year in that eight minute remark that sent the S&P down 3% over the next week, it's gonna be the bond market that's gonna go parabolic. And that's gonna be a problem for the capital markets. So, so Jim, this is very much about the competitive dynamic for your money. And the number of conversations I've had with uh, sophisticated individual investors, let alone corporate executives that deal in treasurer's offices or CFO type roles have talked a lot about this idea that with yields, the way that they're trading right now in that kind of four to 5% range for anything from savings accounts to money market funds really makes it attractive to just hold your money there and not deal with any risk whatsoever because it's all guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. taxpayer. Yeah, certainly that makes a lot of sense. By the way, I agree with what Joe said about this being competition for equities and what Chairman Powell needs to do at the end of the week. But, Dom, I just want to push back a little bit, not not to what Joe said, and you're not insinuating this, but the, the dynamic of how attractive these yields are will change when equities get a rally. I mean, that's what you saw until you got to August, right, is that equities were rallying and then all of a sudden people started flooding in. I, I think we've got to put August in its place. This is seasonality that's happening here. When you get a pullback like this, there's always a reason. There's always a reason. It's rates. It's China. And there's always a legitimate reason. But what we have to understand underneath this is we've got a darn strong economy. We've got a really strong economy. Now, I'm not saying I believe the 5.8% figure from the Atlanta Fed GDP now. It's probably lower than that, but that's a pretty big number on the face of it. And you got jobless claims in the low 200,000s. You got retail sales picking up. We have got a strong economy. So in addition to the analysis that Joe just did, I want to say there's a basic reason why the 10-year is going up in yield. It's because of economic strength. And this yield curve, which has been inverted and vexing people for so long, is uninverting by the long end of the curve coming up. Now, what's interesting and what I think we should all be looking for is what happens on the short end of the curve, what happens at the two-year. This is going to depend critically not only on what Chairman Powell says on Friday, but what happens with inflation. I'm looking at one figure from our, our friend Ed Yardeni. He put it out last night that said, excluding shelter, CPI headline is at 2.0%. But shelter is so important. We all need roofs. But it over lags. Our right. It lags like crazy. Inflation is likely to come down, which is likely to take the two-year down as the Fed can take its foot off the, you know, off the brake a little bit here. I'm not calling for an imminent rate cut, but the two-year can come down as the ten-year comes up, and it doesn't have to be catastrophic. The one canary we got to look out for, though, is the regional bank index. It's what you got to look for. It happened in March. Interest rates are now higher. you got to keep an eye there. There's still relative weakness there. Bryn, I want to bring you into the conversation right now. Uh, you know, Jim laid out a couple of interesting points with regard to why we're seeing yields pick up the way that they are. 
One of them could be that the strong economy is in play and that, you know, there is a growth factor behind the reason why we're seeing interest rates tick higher. Another one that some would argue is maybe a more a substantive driver of lower bond prices and higher yields is an inflationary threat that is picking up again. Uh, it may not show it maybe in the last day or two, but we've been seeing a steady uptrend in crude oil prices. It's translating into pain at the pump for a lot of folks. I drive every day to and from work. I know how much more I'm paying per fill up to fill up a tank of gasoline. It's about maybe eight, nine dollars more than it was at any point over the last six months. Why is the inflation story not getting as much attention right now than it should? Well, we know that they take out food and energy. So we can't do that with our budgets, but um, the Fed takes out food and energy. So I think you have to really separate those from what Powell would do or the Federal Reserve would do. But I do want to go back to what Jim was saying, because it's so important, because this is like bond 101. And the bonds have been really disagreeing with stocks all year and last year with this massive inverted yield curve. And so to Jim's point, but it's worth reiterating, what you're having part of it is just the bond market recognizing that, hey, the stock market was right. We actually have economic growth picking up. If the Atlanta Fed is even remotely close to their expectation, well, the bond market actually has a lot of uninverting or steepening to do. And so I think that 100%, if the 10-year, which is breaking out, and trillions of trillions of dollars of assets are priced off of the 10-year, if the 10-year continues to break out, number one, the Fed is absolutely watching this, because that's incredibly restrictive that's naturally happening. The Fed is also doing quantitative tightening, but you're gonna have a headwind to equities in general with that 10-year, you know, well over that four, I think 420 was the October 2022. Um, we're now well above that. And so I think we're gonna be pressured here until we get some reconciliation of what's gonna happen. But if you just think about a stock that's breaking out, typically it goes higher. And that's where I think the concern in the market is and the last hour we end up fading because the yields are high and no one wants to stay in this market at this point because of the concern of what could happen. Because don't forget, SVB was not the only bank that didn't know how to properly manage their balance sheet. So this is the level where I think people start to get fearful that things start breaking again. All right, so Steve, uh, Bryn brings up an interesting point there with regard to this kind of idea that as yields go higher, it takes some of the attractiveness away from stock valuations. But, you know, I can't help but notice, and I'm sure our viewers are right now, the interesting juxtaposition in that kind of lower right-hand part of the screen where you see yields touching their highest point on the 10-year side of things since 2007. At the same time, the NASDAQ composite is outperforming the so-called value parts of the market. I thought it was the conventional wisdom that the technology stocks and the more tech heavier indices like the NASDAQ are the ones that suffer the most if yields go higher and valuations come under pressure. Steve, what's the difference there? Why the, why the disconnect? Well, that's not what's happening today. Uh, look, maybe the market uh, selling off and it's not a major correction is as simple as the bulls have made so much damn money this year. And the bears haven't, so the bulls said, hey, I'm taking August off, and the bears still got to work to pay their rent. Uh, of course, I'm being facetious, but, you know, look, clearly the fact that you have an alternative in 5% treasuries can take something out of the equity market. But I think that's really only partially what's happening. So let's look at some other things. Let's look at deer. 
They reported another great quarter on Friday. The stock's down about 50 bucks, you know, 10, 12 percent from the highs. Why? Because they're worried that investors are worried about demand going forward because they're seeing what's happening in inventories. They're seeing used uh, inventory, uh, used machinery inventory up 20 to 50 percent. Take a look at Palo Alto's quarter. A great quarter, right? Surprised everybody. Stock's doing well today. But take a look at what they said, not in terms of whether their business is selling or not. What they're saying is, is that their customers are hanging on to their cash. Financing, the percentage of customers that are financing, despite where rates are, has increased by 45%. So maybe it's not as simple as that you've got an alternative. And by the way, two years, two-year treasuries were over 5% not that long ago. Here, they're not at 5%. Nonetheless, if you even chart just today's action in the market, what you would see is that the market started off on a very high note, and then as yields moved up, the market came down. So there's sensitivity to that, but I don't think it's because people all of a sudden said this morning at 10 a.m., I'm going to take some out of equities. What they're saying is I'm a little worried that it's taken a little longer for the massive tightening cycle to filter through into the market. They're paying attention and saying that household savings have now been somewhat depleted, that you spent all that excess cash that credit card levels are at the highest they've been in a long time, and delinquencies are starting to tick up. So you can either pay attention to the headline, or you can pay attention to what's going on underneath. So let's turn to Powell. So Powell, be very critical. I don't expect him to be dovish. I don't expect him to be more, more you know, hawkish than he's been. He's going to continue along the same timeline, which is that, hey, basically we're going to be data dependent, but inflation still stubbornly high. Maybe we're done, maybe we're not. And that's what the market is, fo- is focused on, not just the seasonality. All right. So, so Joe, you, you've been kind of moving your lips, nodding, moving your head a little bit. Anything in response to that? No, I, th- I think Steve's right. But I think when you're, you're trying to understand what's happening so far, three hours, uh, two and a half hours, rather, into the trading day, you have to go back to where this conversation began. And let's remember, it's August. It's, you know, the end of the summer. You have, you know, a lot of people that are away from the desk doing, whether it's vacation or sending kids off to college, whatever they might be doing. And there's there's less liquidity in the marketplace. And we're awaiting uh, Jackson Hole on Friday. Yeah, well, you're, you're waiting Jackson Hole on Friday. So I don't I don't put too much into what's going on in the moment right now. I, I just think the big question is you're getting a pullback in the market. What do you think about that pullback? Do you think that pullback, which you asked me two weeks ago, is the inflection point? Or do you think the, bull, the pullback at some point is a buying opportunity for those that have missed out on the 2023 rally. And I'm still of the belief that at some point very soon, you're going to look upon equities and realize you have a nice buying opportunity in front of you. Okay, so because speaking of buying opportunities and because, you know, the door was opened just now, uh, Weiss mentioned Palo Alto Networks, which is seeing a massive move higher today. You can see by about 15 to 16 percent or so. It makes it our chart of the day. The stock is soaring on the back of strong results, strong results that some folks didn't really anticipate because of their announcement to make an earnings report on a Friday afternoon in August. Joe, uh, you bought it this morning, but it's not just that you bought it this morning. This was a name that you've done 
activity with in the past and are getting back into now. Can you take us through the rationale for what you're doing and why? Yeah, year, years ago, I learned about uh, Palo Alto. I talked about it on the network about cybersecurity, and I stayed there for quite some time. I've traded around Palo Alto, um, but cybersecurity has been a thesis that I've believed in. Whether interest rates were uh, 1% or interest rates were approaching 5%, I, be I believe that cybersecurity was something that investors should maintain positioning towards as you look uh, into the future. I pivoted towards CrowdStrike. I own CrowdStrike and traded around CrowdStrike for quite some time. In the fall, I believe I bought CrowdStrike somewhere around 110 to 115 level. Traded out of that in June at 145, which doesn't look too good this morning. Um, the the JOT strategy recently bought Fortinet. That's a bad purchase given the post-earning sell-off in Fortinet. But collectively, when I study the cybersecurity exposure, having lost CrowdStrike in June, only having Fortinet, now seeing Palo Alto say in fiscal year 2024, our billings growth is going to be somewhere around 20%, seeing the remarkable resiliency that's represented in those earnings, I said to myself, I want to go back and maintain the exposure to cybersecurity. I am going to utilize the funds that I raised from CrowdStrike going to take a position in Palo Alto and back into CrowdStrike. So I own Palo Alto, I own CrowdStrike, and through the Joti ETF, I own Fortinet. I own them all. I also, we have Cisco in the uh, Joti ETF. The only one we really don't have is Checkpoint Software, Checkpoint Software rather, but I'm going to maintain my exposure here to cybersecurity, CrowdStrike, and Palo Alto. They'll be mainstains in the portfolio. I'm not going to trade around them anymore. I'm going to stay more consistent with it because I kind of screwed that up a little bit. Okay, so, so Steve, I, I, I want to get out to you here. Palo Alto is a name that you've also held in the past. The, the cybersecurity yeah. thematic trade, is it something that you'd be interested in again? Are you in, are you in anything else right now besides maybe you know, Palo Alto in the past? Has anything else piqued your interest within that entire sphere with regard to cybersecurity? I was actually hoping Palo Alto would, would miss and that the hysteria and the woe is me from the sell side analysis that they actually had to work on a Friday afternoon during the summer when the company reported would lead to, uh, to a miss. But uh, nothing's that obvious. So uh, I'll be patient, Palo Alto. I love the company uh, for all you know the reasons Joe mentioned. Cybersecurity is going to continue to be a place where you have to be, where companies have to spend. And as I mentioned, they're even willing to finance it at higher rates uh, to, to buy their, their products. CrowdStrike's also a good one. So, so uh, frankly, you know, I'm not tempted at this level. I'd like to see it settle in uh, a little bit before I buy it. I don't regard it as particularly cheap. Um, so I do own it through the Joe T because I own Joe T. But, uh, but yeah, I'm tempted. I'm just not buying a stock that's up 10% on on an earnings move, not that it couldn't go up another 10%. We've seen it do that because momentum has just been carrying these stocks. All right, that's, I mean, that's fair. Bryn, uh, the idea that you know, somebody could want to buy something on, with momentum is, is not unheard of. But I wonder if, if you're looking at these types of companies, whether or not you feel as though there's one that sticks out versus the others, or if there's a way that you do it without having to pick them either through mutual funds or, or with ETFs. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of certain ETFs, and so I own Bug, which is a Global X 
you know, concentrated pure cybersecurity. So it wouldn't own like a Cisco, which just has, you know, part of their revenue from there. And actually the number one holding, which hasn't been mentioned, is Zscaler. And which is the which is the biggest, and so the top three holdings are Zscaler, um, CrowdStrike, and Palo, and so those are chunky positions around eight to seven percent each. And so I think you know Joe and Joe's spot on as well as Steve. These are this is a secular story, it's a long term story, but you have to understand it'll have to manage through the cycle. I did think it was interesting, and not that it really affects Palo, but just thinking through what Steve said about how more of their customers are going are using are are going on credit. Um, which to me just is interesting to read through more economically. But this is the way I play it. I think it's a long, it's a, it's a smart way to have a concentrated portfolio where I'm not going to get shaken out because ultimately all of these companies won't be the winners. And so I just want to have the exposure and it's market cap weighted. And so the natural, the bigger they get, they'll naturally become a higher percent in the portfolio, which is, which is what exactly the trade I'm trying to, uh, to put on is to have a market cap weighted um, cybersecurity ETF. All right, Brent. Well, speaking of Palo Alto Network specifically, you don't want to miss a CNBC exclusive interview with Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Arora happening tonight with Jim Cramer, Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, about the state of cyber, stock valuations, technology overall, and just about anything else Jim is going to think up there. So, Mad Money tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Arora. Now, turning now to the other big event this week, we've got NVIDIA, which is set to report its second quarter results on Wednesday. The shares are up at this point more than 200 percent, which is just an easy way of saying it's tripled or maybe just say it's tripled. And there are big expectations, no doubt, for the company to deliver on those results. Uh, Jim, you tell us that you are looking to buy into this name. Uh, this is one that's been off to the races ever since they kind of pre-announced results and basically said that there's a massive tailwind behind the sentiment around artificial intelligence and business spending you see and everything Joe else. looking at me with these raised eyebrows? He's wondering what I'm going to say. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm uh, curious. No, well, look, I'm a cautionary tale, right, of what happens when you don't own the market leader. Um, and I haven't owned it. I owned it two years ago. But now this is what you do. I'm certainly not the only person out there who doesn't own this stock, is you've got to start building the position. I'm probably going to take a 1% position sometime in the next couple of days, certainly before the earnings come out. I have no idea if earnings are going to be good or bad. And I also tell you, this is a stock right now that if I gave you Wednesday's headlines in the afternoon and told you how to trade it, you probably wouldn't get it right. Nobody knows how it's going to react to this. Probably to the upside, but nobody really knows. My point being on this, if you're not in it, you've got to build your position over time. A 1% position for somebody who runs a concentrated portfolio like me is really a pittance on a stock that's probably going to be 4 to 5% of my portfolio. But I'm going to build that over the next several months, maybe even quarters. So I've just got to get in there piece by piece. I'm not doing it today, by the way. I thought about it this morning. Stock's up 5% on who knows why, all right? This is a stock that is trading much more on the hype than the actual numbers and I'm not saying it isn't putting up good numbers it is putting up good numbers but 50 times forward earnings from a semiconductor stock you are building in a lot of future years profits and so I'm gonna buy some now and then get to it over the rest of this year and into 2024 okay uh, this is interesting I, I want to point out Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley uh, who who got it right last year and maybe not as right this year uh, kind of came out and issued a, a bit of a mea culpa about the way that the markets have behaved so far. Mm -hmm. uh, he does point out that, that NVIDIA will be a big test this week 
and the price action may be more important than the actual results themselves or the guidance in our view. In other words, we don't think outstanding results from NVIDIA will change the complexion of the more recent price action for the other derivative plays or for the broader market in the way that we did back in May. Uh, so, Joe, I'll look to you here. Yeah. This is, this is one where you own NVIDIA, and, and I'm not saying that you would trade in or out of it because of one earnings report that's coming up, but it seems as though Jim calls this something of a position that you have to be in, but that you don't have to be career long or short a position at these levels for NVIDIA. Why would you want to stay long or even maybe add to it or trim around it? Well. I think, I think we've been pretty clear over the last several weeks that if the market is looking for any form of a catalyst, it could be NVIDIA that is the actual catalyst at the end of the month. Um, I think about NVIDIA as the signature for the 2023 equities rally. And the dog also agrees with me. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes. Don't so like it when the it, dogs it, bark. It, it, is, it is, in fact, it defines everything about what 2023. 23 has been about. So the reaction, yes, is going to be incredibly important to the markets, but it's it's the overall maintenance of the bullish tone for 2023. And the reason why I do believe you stay in NVIDIA, you don't look at NVIDIA as this is a moment where you move away from it because the best times are behind it, is because they have very quietly spent on the AI platform while the company was positioning itself as gaming, as autonomous vehicles, as uh, exposure to crypto and exposure to data center, they built out the infrastructure for artificial intelligence, and now they're benefiting from it. They're benefiting from being there in generative AI. It's about the supply to demand and balance for the chips that are needed, and they're the solution for it. So no, I don't think just because this company has done so remarkably well so far in 2023 that you dismiss that secular theme that's currently attached to NVIDIA. And then the last point on it, where's the competition for NVIDIA? Well, some would say AMD. I mean, it's distant, but AMD could be up there. Some would also point out to ARM Holdings as a possible beneficiary from a, a chip design standpoint. And we've got a highly anticipated IPO coming up there. There are other folks trying to get in on it. So is there another play there that could be the NVIDIA that's in the first or second inning of that particular game, so, as opposed to NVIDIA where it is right now? I, I believe that, that Broadcom is a more reasonable valuation way to play generative AI. But... I dismiss the premise that there is anyone who has significant market share to the capacity that NVIDIA currently has right now related to generative AI and the ability to generate revenue here and now. All right, Bryn, I've got just a couple I'll, seconds left. I'll give left. you one. Wait, wait, wait hold, okay, hold on uh, just a second, Steve. Just wait, just, is it Bryn, from you or the dog? It could be from the dog. Bryn. Uh, <laughs> The, the NVIDIA story, I've just got a few moments left here. What do you think? You're an owner. Yeah, they're going to sell all of the A100 and H100s that they have made, and they will continue to sell all of the ones they have made um, for the next few quarters. There's just tremendous backlog. And so can they sell enough for the market to be excited about it? Well, we'll see. But I just think this money, this stock is in its own league, just in its own league by itself. No one else is monetizing AI like NVIDIA, because everyone else is buying their chips and spending the money, and NVIDIA is making it. So I think it's a unique time with a unique company where I don't, I don't think we'll see this kind of, this type of company with these kind of numbers 
um, I think are just few and far between. All right. That's the NVIDIA story. Steve, I will get back to you with that other pick later on if we got some time here. Coming up on the show, we got Goldman Sachs under pressure. The shares are down 10% just this month alone. The bank now weighing the sale of part of its wealth management business. The committee's take and how to play the big banks coming up next. Halftime is back after this break. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. We are watching shares of Goldman Sachs today. The investment bank is exploring a possible sale of its registered investment advisor unit. It's part of a pivot back to focusing on just the ultra-high net worth UHNW clients. Uh, Steve Weiss, this is a name, Goldman Sachs, that you're involved in. Is this a move that you like, core competency-wise, or do you think that they're getting rid of a piece that could be supportive later on down the line in times of turbulence? No, I'm, I'm glad they're getting rid of it. Uh, look, they, they went into this business, I think Blank Fine actually started it. Solomon uh, took it to a much larger scale. And the good news is that rather than holding on to what was turned out to be, perhaps not at the time, but now a misguided uh, uh, foray into consumer banking, uh, they're getting out. Look, very few of these companies, I'm not sure of any that make money. Uh, in online, you know, fintech, et cetera. So I'm glad they're getting out uh, and then they'll move forward. So it should actually be accretive earnings. Uh, it's already known that, that the businesses just aren't profitable, that they're not making people internally happy. I think the bigger issue is what is David Solomon's future? I, I just don't recall any CEO that's been under such assault by the press uh, and clearly whispering from insiders that has been able to, uh, you know, to survive. I think David is a survivor. I think he will stay there. The board's going to apparently meet this week or next week to talk about that, how to support him and sure him up. And you need to get that out of the press and out of the way for the company to move. The other observation I'd make is what's kind of surprising, Jim referenced the steepening of the yield curve. You know, I'd be hard pressed to think of any other times in the past where a steepening yield curve didn't lead to higher profitability at banks and at other financial companies. And on the other hand, we're seeing these companies trade down. I'm not just talking about Goldman, I'm talking about B of A, I'm talking about the others. So I would think that financials will look much better going forward because of that. And the IPO market, if the market rallies, will come back. Okay, so, so Jim, this is interesting. Uh, there, there are a lot of believers in Goldman Sachs out there. 
you can't really be on Wall Street and not feel the presence there. But Goldman Sachs is a name that you had at one point and then you divested of. So has anything changed about the Goldman story, today's headlines notwithstanding, that make you want to get back into Goldman, or are there other places to be within big banks and brokerages and my banks? Uh, I'm, I'm not tempted to get back in right now. Steve and I have talked about Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, we both share an opinion that it is the creme de la creme. Now, just going perhaps too far back in my own personal history, I worked there from 1998 to 2004, and I remember when I was offered a job there that my father, who was also in the business for decades, said to me, it is the creme de la creme. Okay, and he, he, he had been in the business for decades. He said, it's the creme de la creme. I unfortunately don't think that's the case anymore. I think significant damage has been done uh, this century to the, the uh, reputation of Goldman Sachs. Now, with regards to how did that happen, certainly these forays into consumer banking contributed quite a bit. Uh, a question lingers, is that Mr. Solomon's fault or is it Mr. Blankfein's fault? Unfortunately, the market, Dom, has answered that question. During the five years that uh, Mr. Solomon has been at the helm, the worst thing possible has happened. And I'm seeing this as somebody who used to work there. When Morgan Stanley outperforms your stock price by 2x during your tenure, you have a problem. And I'm not just speaking conjecturally. It's not me sort of elbowing Joe here and joshing around. I am telling you that people at Goldman Sachs, and I was one of them, pay attention to that. That matters. When your direct competitor outperforms you like that, granted, there's been a little bit of clawback of that underperformance this year. It's a big problem for Mr. Solomon. Okay, uh-huh. Joe, I, I, again, you're not, a, are you not in, you're not in Goldman, okay, but you're so, in other banks. Well, a, a couple of different points here. We, we, we've, got to, we've got to go through this. First of all, I've owned Morgan Stanley for the better part of the last six years. And one of the reasons that I've owned Morgan Stanley is I believe management executes efficiently. They've done some uh, very interesting acquisitions and they're growing the wealth management business. Goldman Sachs put the wrong foot into the consumer business. You could blame whichever CEO you want to blame, but statistically the numbers are the numbers and I'm not in Goldman Sachs, okay? David Solomon became the CEO of Goldman Sachs in January of 2019. The price of Goldman Sachs was $170. The price of Goldman Sachs right now is somewhere around $320. The XLF at that point was 24. The XLF today is 33. Morgan Stanley was in the low 40s. Morgan Stanley is 83 today. So has Morgan Stanley so significantly outperformed Goldman Sachs? I'm looking at the five-year I'm chart right here. It's, it's, it's five-year chart. It's 2X. Okay. It's two. I mean, I'm, this is fact set. In January I'm, of 2019, where was Goldman Sachs? It was one seven. I'm looking. I'm just. I told just, you a five-year chart. I wait, don't know what happened in the in the first three months of that. Right, it's two. See if we can show a five-year chart of so, Goldman versus Morgan Stanley. So, guys. is it is it that Morgan Stanley is the biggest issue, or is there just can we call it what it is? There seems to be this personality issue related to David Solomon, and there are individuals there. I don't. All right, so there we go. So, so viewers and listeners on SiriusXM Channel 112, you've got a chart right up here showing the five-year five-year performance of Goldman Sachs versus Morgan Stanley. Uh, to, to Jim's point, Goldman Sachs is up about 43% during that span, with Morgan Stanley shares up about 80 to 81% in that same span. So, so there's his 2x. There's probably dividends in there included. So, Jimmy, you're right on that figure. Just purely looking at price, those are the price statistics that I gave. So we'll include the dividends in that as well. That's why you're seeing the the reason for the outperformance. But I just don't know if it's more personality 
related to David Solomon than anything else. Has he really done that bad of a job? I'm not necessarily sure that I agree with that. All right, it's a big debate on Wall Street right now with Goldman versus Morgan Stanley for sure. All right, let's get out to the news headlines with Seema Modi. Hi, Seema. Um, North Korea's state news agency reporting leader Kim Jong-un oversaw testing of strategic cruise missiles. These photos appear to show Kim watching the test abroad, a warship on the country's eastern coast. The latest test comes as the U.S. and South Korea's militaries begin annual exercises and a new economic and military pact between the U.S., South Korea and Japan. A raging wildfire on the Spanish island of Tenerife, starting deliberately that from Spanish authorities who have not yet confirmed any arrests, calling the worst fire there in decades. Firefighters report they're finally getting it under control thanks to better weather. Thousands have already been evacuated. And let's talk entertainment. Blue Beetle ending Barbie's four-week streak at the top of the box office. Comscore estimates the film brought in over $25 million in North America, meeting the low end of early projections. The Latino-centric superhero movie has struggled with a reduced marketing campaign impacted by those ongoing Hollywood strikes. Dom, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sima Modi, thank you very much for the headlines there. Next up, artificial intelligence investing beyond NVIDIA. Bob Hassani details that straight ahead in the ETF Ed show today. Halftime is back after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Artificial intelligence, or AI, was the big stock story in the first seven months of the year. But that narrative has started to sputter as higher rates and perhaps too much hype have dented AI stocks. A bigger problem is a small number of choices for AI investors. Let's talk with John Mayer. He's the chief investment officer of GlobalX, who runs the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF and the Robotics and Artificial Intelligence ETF. He knows a lot about this subject. John, your two big ETFs, huge outperformers in the first half, sunk in August. What's the problem? We have valuations, interest rates, China. I think all of those points are, are valid, but I think you have to look to the broader story. The CapEx cycle has been super strong. Year over year, 9% for S&P 500 companies. Companies are looking to improve efficiencies. And in bots, artificial intelligence and robotics ETF, you have a broad cross-section of companies, whether it be healthcare companies or industrial companies, and they're helping improve efficiency. So I think this, this theme can play out for quite some time. You know, buy NVIDIA was the answer to every AI question yeah. in the first half of the year. But who are the broader beneficiaries? What, what's in this bots that you think is going to be the real beneficiaries of AI? Well, if you look at, if you drill down and look into inside the ETF, Intuitive Surgical, um, that plays on our, uh, robotic technology, certainly. Uh, Fanuc, um, in, in, uh, Keyens Corp. These are companies that are, will help improve efficiencies of other corporations. Industrial automation, yeah, big robotics, and they're going to be a beneficiary of this, obviously. Dynatrace, for example, is software intelligence, right? 
Yeah, all of these companies can help improve the overall efficiencies of other companies. And if you look at the CapEx cycle, it's super strong. So companies are investing in themselves. Okay, we're going to have a lot more on AI investing, including John's picks for private companies that are going to benefit from AI coming up on ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. He'll be joined by Todd Sohn. He's the ETF and technical strategist at Strategia Securities. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime. Back right after this. Welcome back to the half. Time now for Grade My Trade. So for Bryn Talkington, Eric in Switzerland, Schweiss, bought Microsoft back in February at $249.92. Should he sell it and take the profit or just keep holding on? Well, it depends how you think about it. I always think there's a good premise about a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Um, I will say that uh, Microsoft is right at its 100-day moving average. But as a long-term investor, I think there's probably, besides Tim Cook and Jensen Wong, Satya Nadella and his team are the best leadership in the space. So I'm a long-term holder. I'm holding it. Um, but a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. All right. Microsoft, birds in hand. Jim Labenthal, John bought, uh, John in Kansas, rather, bought Wynn Resorts at 97 bucks a share. So please grade his trade. Yeah, John, I really think you want to stick with this here. I like your entry point, even though it's down. So I'm going to give you an A on this because I think there's a lot of gains to be had here. It's being held. The stock is being held hostage by what's going on in China. But the reason that shouldn't matter is twofold. One, wins operations in the U.S. are killing it, just absolutely killing it. And number two, despite what's going on in China, Macau is also doing much better than expected. So there's really no reason for the stock to be below 100 here. All right. Joe Terranova. Daniel in Miami bought Hershey at 236 bucks. Now he writes, based on this pullback, I believe we shall see an upward continuation on the 10-year trend line. So what are your thoughts with regard to Hershey? My thoughts are that this is a name that's been in the Joe T strategy for quite some time, and the momentum is broken. Unfortunately, consumer staples no longer have the competitive rate advantage for what their dividend yield is relative to treasuries. Broken momentum, Dom, not good. All right, not good for Hershey. And then for Weiss, Marco in Florida bought GXO Logistics back in March, 51 bucks a pop. Should he also add to this position, sell it, or hold it, Steve? I like it. So it's an A because you listen to me, and it's also an A because it's a great company. Look, they in their quarter, they announced they've already booked $500 million worth of business for next year. The pipeline continues to grow. They're the largest independent 3PL in the world, and they also have room to make some acquisitions. So I would actually add to it here, the company is just expertly managed, tremendously well managed, and it's in the right spot as you see more onshoring coming into the U.S. and also into Europe, where more of their business is, frankly. So again, it's a favorite holding of mine. I'd stay with it. All right. Thanks to the committee for their weighing in on the Grade My Trade. And thanks for the viewers for sending those questions in. Coming up on the show, we got a number of big retail names reporting earnings this week. You can see some of the names there. We've got the setup from the committee coming up on the Halftime Report after this break. A lot of retail still left in the week. Welcome back to the half. It's another busy week of retail earnings, as you can see by the calendar there. We got Dick's Sporting Goods kicking things off tomorrow before the opening bell. Dick Sporting Goods is a name that Steve Weiss owns. So, Steve, we'll go to you with this one. What are you expecting out of DSG? <clears throat> Look, I'm expecting more of the same for, for Dick Sporting Goods, which is that good performance. Uh, uh, they don't really have any broad, broad competition nationally. There's some regional players like Academy Sports, 
But, but Dick sort of owns the category to himself. And once again, I don't think you can disintermediate them from an Amazon standpoint as much as others, because it's still an experience going buying sporting goods. However, what I would say is that as the stock uh, gets closer to 150, 160, that it's not getting expensive, but it's getting fairly valued. So I'd like to see some upside to the quarter here, as I've seen with prior quarters. But, you know, I go back and forth. Right now, I'm staying with it. I'll probably stay with through the quarter, which is not a big decision since it's happening uh, tomorrow. Okay, so another name that's reporting later on this week, and this is Thursday after the closing bell, is Ulta Beauty, a name that's been in and out of the spotlight since the pandemic days because of the trends in personal care, work at home, that kind of thing. Uh, this is a Joe T stock, so Joe Terranova. Ulta, expectations, and what do you do with the stock regardless of what happens with earnings? Well, I, th I think, first of all, the comp setup is a good one. I think they're going to be able to maintain their margins. I'm obviously speaking about the fundamentals. Uh, unfortunately, there has been a breakdown in price, so that's testing the strength of overall momentum. I think earnings, which will be reported on Thursday, will be the ultimate uh, res uh, ultimate resolution in terms of whether it's the factor of the fundamentals or the factor of the momentum that's going to win out. It's a name that we maintain positioning towards right now in the portfolio, but I think Thursday's earnings report is incredibly important to where we go in that regard. And Bryn, we'll give you the last word on the consumer here. It's been a very much a mixed picture with regard to the corporate results that we've seen so far Walmart versus Target, other discretionary type names. Is there anything that stood out to you so far that would make you either more bullish or less bullish on the strength of the American consumer? Unless an event happens, right, which we can't predict, the consumer's strong. And yes, they're tapping credit cards. You have to watch that. 30-day um, delinquencies are, are, are kicking up. But ultimately, the consumer is still strong. Jobs are aplenty. And so, as I said in the beginning, if there's an event that occurs, which none of us can predict, then sure, that would change things. But ultimately, I think that the, as everyone has spent on travel this summer, to me, that's one area I'm watching. So I think everyone just like everyone went to Italy, everyone went to Europe. And I'm, I think that the consumer somewhat tapped out from that perspective. So I want to see over the next couple of quarters what happens in those more travel type entities if we see that start to slow down. And I've been pretty much right here in the New York City area. All right, folks, thank you very much. Final trades are coming up next from the committee. Keep it right here on the Halftime Report. Welcome back. Time now for final trades. Bryn, we'll start with you. I'm going to go with Diamondback, but I'm going to structure some options around it. You can sell the December 160s, collect around $6. And if it gets called away from you in December, you've got about 4% on the dividend on the premium, plus about 9% on the upside on the stock, plus about a 1% dividend payment. So around a 15% trade of the next four months if it does get called away from you. All right, Steve Weiss. Microsoft, all the talk about NVIDIA justified. A, a great way to play it is Microsoft, which is sold off nicely and will be the number one beneficiary of AI, in my view. All right, Joe T. I'll see you, Microsoft, and I'll raise you a Broadcom. All right, Broadcom. And then Jim, Farmer Jim, happy birthday. Final Thank you, trade. buddy. Thank you. ExxonMobil is my birthday gift to everybody. All right. That does it for the halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 